Psalm 103. Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer and recap where we have been over the last few weeks, and then we'll get right into our text. Father, we thank you again that we can come into your presence and at this time hear from you. We know that you will. Still, we pray for it. Please speak to us. Please show to us your glory. And give us eyes to see and give us ears to hear. We admit our need and we, we confess, Father, before you that we don't see as we ought to see. We can't see as we ought to see. And so we ask, Father, for healing. Like the Apostle Paul, what happened to him? We pray that we would have the same experience spiritually, that we would receive the Holy Spirit and the scales that are over our spiritual eyes would fall to the ground. Give us sight. I pray that we would see your glory shining in the face of your Son. And I pray, Father, that everyone here would have faith and we would turn to praise. Praise that you are worthy of. This is what you deserve. And it's what we long to give. So we pray for your help and we ask for this blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. After Israel made and worshipped the golden calf image, breaking its covenant with God, you remember that Moses was forced into a place where he had to intercede for the nation. Because first of all, God threatened to consume the nation, and so Moses prayed on their behalf. And then God, relenting, said that he would allow the nation to live, and he would allow the nation to actually get into the promised land that he had promised their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but God himself, in the revelation of his glory, would not be going with the people. And to the ears of the people, it says in Exodus 33, this was a disastrous word. A disastrous word. Because it was not enough for them to live. It was not enough for them to have the land of promise. If they did not have this revelation of the glory of God the presence of his glory with them, they had nothing. That's the very thing. God's presence with them that made them distinct from every people on the face of the earth. And so Moses, that's what he asked for. That's what his great fear was, that they would not have the tabernacle, that the most holy place in it would not be filled with the glory of God. So that's what he prayed for. And God relented again. And he said, I will go with you. And then you remember... This is where Moses prayed. He cried out, please show me your glory. If your glory is going to go with us, if your glory is going to be revealed in the most holy place, I want to see your glory now. Please, he says, show me your glory. And God answered. On the following day in the heights of Sinai, God came down and declared, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And I just want to think about something. In our adult Sunday school class this morning, we paused to talk about how, you know, right after they have sinned, God comes with mercy. He comes with his promises. Even before he lays out what judgment is going to be because of their treason, he gives them the hope of the gospel. Genesis 3.15, it's very, it's very similar here. On the day after Israel's most faithless sin to date, God gives the greatest revelation of his glory to date in what he declares to Moses and to the nation. That's what kind of God we have. That's what kind of God deserves our praise. So God's answer to Moses, we have been saying, the revelation of his glory, and throughout this sermon 
and, and I think I've already done it in the past, but I'm going to call it the glory revelation, all right? God's answer to Moses, the glory revelation, stands at the headwaters of the revelation of our redemption. So, in other words, every person whom God redeems downstream from this, all through history, may know from this revelation in the past what to expect from God. We know what to expect from him. Not what conditions he's going to create for us, necessarily, but the kind of character he's going to prove to us over and over again. That should hearten you. That should give you encouragement. We know what to expect from God in his character day after day of our lives. So this revelation is vital to your knowing God. The Old Testament saints that we love and look up to and whose example we follow thought this. They believed this because they kept coming back to this, this uh, glory revelation time and time again and made application from it to whatever situation they were facing in their lives. In uh, the ESV Gospel Transformation Bible, there's this comment made on Psalm 86. God's self-revelation to Moses in Exodus 34, 6-7 is the north star of the Bible and the refrain of the Psalter. Especially in David, you see that there is not a single passage of Scripture, there is not a single revelation from God that arrested his heart more than what God showed in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. There is not a truth that affected his life more than this. So I want to tell you where we're going over the next four weeks. This is what I have done. I started with the word steadfast love. And going off of steadfast love, that phrase in Saul, or Exodus 34, verse 6, it's the Hebrew word said. Translated the ESV, steadfast love. I've looked up every quote and every allusion to Exodus 34, 6, and 7 in the Bible. And so that's more than 200 passages of Scripture. And I've looked over these passages numerous times each, and I've, I've found these patterns there that keep coming up again and again, these patterns, the effects that this revelation had on the lives of the Old Testament saints, and there's four of them. And so what we're going to do is we're going to scour the Old Testament over the next four weeks ourselves, especially concentrating on the Psalms, and we're going to look each week for the next four Sundays, Lord willing, at the four effects that this revelation had on God's people, and we're going to attempt, we're going to strive to follow their example. And so these are the four effects that the glory revelation had on the people of God. First of all, and what we're looking at today, they were compelled to praise God. They were compelled to praise. Number two, they were turned to pleading. In intercession for the nation and on behalf of themselves and going to God for forgiveness, it was this revelation that they kept coming back to. Number three, they were spurred on to perseverance in hope and holiness. And then finally, this revelation became their proclamation. So praise, pleading, perseverance, and proclamation. And that's what we're going to be looking at our next four Sundays, beginning today. So we're at Psalm 103. Psalm 103 is one of the most beloved of the Psalms written by David, he wrote about half of the Psalms. This one was also written by him, and it's a song of praise to the great and glorious God who is revealed in Exodus 34. In fact, Exodus 34, verse 6, is the, the linchpin of the psalm. It's the, the cornerstone, if you will. Everything else that David says in this psalm in addressing God and giving praises up to him connects, fits to the glory revelation of Exodus 34, verse 6. Let us read the first eight verses. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. 
Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. How does David know all of this? Because he made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He begins again, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. It's very clear that worship is a whole person response to God fitting his revelation. It's a whole person response. You remember the, the hypocrisy that Jesus condemned in the religious leaders of his day. He said, you draw near to God with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. Worship is a whole person response. We sing with our mouths what we feel in our hearts. That's why David says, may all that is within me bless the Lord. When do we not offer to God the worship that we should? When we forget his benefits. When we forget the benefits of God, the blessings that he pours out on us every single day, we neglect to give him the worship that he is due. I think it all really boils down to pride and unbelief. Those two very base sins that we have. Because pride, rather than thanking God for the benefits that he pours out on us, takes credit for them. I did this. I deserve this. Or what have you. And so it suppresses praise. Unbelief is the same. Our, our pride and unbelief fences in our perspective so that we can't see beyond into the spiritual realm and realize that God is the one doing us this good. Unbelief forgets that every single moment of our days we are receiving blessings from God. So pride and unbelief mute our praise. But when we are humble before God, and when we see into the spiritual realm with eyes of faith and recognize God's place, his lordship, and his kingship over our lives, we can see that he is pouring out blessing every day. Even the fact that we have this air to breathe and lungs to breathe it is the blessing of God. We owe everything to him. So let's not forget the benefits of God so that we give him the worship with our whole being that he deserves. What benefits? Specifically, God is the one who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. These are the benefits of God. Not an exhaustive list, but a great list. These are God's benefits. Blessings from head to toe, blessings within and without, blessings physical and blessings spiritual. Everything we have, we owe to God. All of it calls forth the praise of God's people. What about our suffering, though? What about our suffering? What if we are oppressed? Even this is addressed in verse 6. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Though we may see in this present moment a time of suffering and hardship, behind the scenes, God is yet working on behalf of his people. He is working righteousness, and he is working his justice. We can trust him, so that even in the dark day, trusting him, we can give him the praise that he is worthy of. What gives David such confidence 
that these blessings and benefits are his? I think there's three things. First and foremost, in the immediate, there is the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Because all scripture is given by inspiration of God. 2 Timothy 3.16. So that's why David has confidence that these blessings are his. Because the Spirit in this moment has opened his eyes to see them. And moved in him to recount them and to put them on paper. But there's also his experience. He knows from the experience of his life that this is the thing that God has done for him. But there's a third thing, too, that I think is easy for us to overlook. The third thing is that David is sitting downstream. And the Spirit is specifically prompting him to look back upstream. Specifically to the headwaters where God has given to his people the glory of Revelation. Because that's why David says in verse 7, he's looking back upstream and he says, I know these things are mine. I know this is what God does for us because he made known his ways to Moses and his acts to the people of Israel. He's looking back upstream some 400 plus years. And he is recalling this to his mind. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Moses' God is David's God. And what God said to Moses still stands. It's that revelation of the character of God that David is presently drawing from. And that's what's Compelling all of this praise and this confidence that God will bless the way that he does. Because this is the character of God. This is David's confidence. This is what sets him to singing. The glory of God compels our praise. Now look at the next words. He will not always chide, in verse 9. Nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Again, how does David know this is true? Number one, because the Spirit is inspiring these words, moving within him to write these words. All scripture, again, is given by inspiration of God. This specific revelation, this confidence is God-breathed. Second, he knows it from his experience. We know very well that although David was a man after God's own heart, this man had serious faults. And there were specific times in his life where he sinned very grievously. And so he knows from his own experience that he does not. Believe me, I know. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. But there's a third thing, again, that gives David this confidence he has not stopped his meditation on the old word. The old word that was given to Moses and to the people of Israel back in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. And David is drawing from that revelation, meditating upon it, and he is applying the attributes and the perfections of God that God revealed back then, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in steadfast love, and he is applying it to this. God is not going to deal with us according to our sins. He, what we deserve is instant punishment. But God does not deal with us that way. How does he know? Because God's slow to anger. Because, because God is merciful. Because God has grace for sinners. And because he abounds in steadfast love. And so the conclusion, he will not repay us just as our iniquities deserve. There's a lesson to be learned here about making application of the Bible. We need to look back at what God has revealed to us, the attributes and the perfections, the character of God. And we need to bring God's character that he has revealed to bear on our life situations. This is how you meditate on the Word of God. 
And this is what David is doing at the prompting of the Holy Spirit. See, I'll show you in verse 11 that you can see the meditation on the old word has not stopped. He says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Where is he drawing this from? He knows, he is meditating upon the truth that God abounds in steadfast love. And so, and so what he is doing is he, is, he is drawing out from that, he is teasing out all of the implications of that. And, well, let me, t let me approach it from a little bit uh, different angle for a moment. God abounds in steadfast love. Okay. Think about human abundance. Human wealth. Wealth of resources, wealth of material possessions, whatever. The greatest human abundance is a limited supply. That's why we have to budget. That's why we have to manage the, the world's resources carefully and not deplete them into exhaustion so that there's nothing left. Divine abundance is altogether different from that, isn't it? There is no limited supply. It's an inexhaustible supply. Because God himself is an infinite being. God doesn't have to reach for something that he needs. You know, reach outside of himself to get something that he needs to provide for us or do the things that he does. He doesn't have to tap into some kind of power source. He doesn't have warehouse after warehouse in heaven where he can go to find the things that he needs so that he can do the things that he does. God possesses within his infinite being everything that is required to be God and do the things that God does. He possesses all within his infinite being. So when God says that he abounds in something, you have to take notice. Because he's infinite. But he is specifically saying, this is what I abound in. Now don't, uh, don't try to measure this quantitatively. Don't picture like the attributes of God as a pie. You know, a pie chart. And God is one-fourth steadfast love. And then... That the rest of him, the rest of the three quarters are sliced up into justice and righteousness and holiness and grace and all of that. Okay? We, we don't imagine these things. We shouldn't picture them quantitatively. They're not quantitative measurements. When God says he abounds in steadfast love, this is what he is saying. This is my, my best attempt. He is telling us that this is where the infinite energies of the affections of his heart are inclined. I'm going to say that again. God is saying, when he says, I abound in steadfast love, he is saying, this is where the infinite energies of the affections of his heart are inclined. Or, we could put it like this, toward his people, toward you and me, Steadfast love is the foremost passion of his heart. It is the foremost passion of his heart toward his children, toward his people. My girls used to tell me, they used to tell me, don't want to put Brienne on the spot, but maybe she can tell me later on why she doesn't say this anymore. But they used to say, Daddy, I love you to the moon and back. Or, Daddy, I love you to the stars and back. And it's just a, a, a better way of saying, I love you. It's a better way of saying, a uh, better way than just saying, I really, really love you, isn't it? It expresses deeply felt affection. I love you to the moon and back. David's words applied to God sound very similar to that, don't they? Read them again. Verse 11, for as high 
as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. This is David just latching on to that word abundant. And it's raising his song to poetical new heights, right? As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. It is a deeply felt divine affection. The God who loves us as high as the heavens are above the earth, verse 12, here's the implication, here's the effect, he removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. He banishes the record of your sin from his presence. Never to bring up the consideration of it again because he abounds in steadfast love. He removes it as far as the east is from the west. I want to skip a couple of verses, not that they're not worthy of our notice and our meditation. Let me read them, but I'm not going to make a specific comment on them. He says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And this leads us into verse 15. Our mortality, the brevity of our lives. What's it like? He says, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. Every life is in countdown. Other ways that the writers of Scripture have expressed this is to say that the life of man is a vapor. It is here one moment and it is gone, carried away the next. It's like grass, like the flower of the field, flourishes. It's beautiful for just a moment. And then there's a hard wind and it's gone and forgotten. To put it bluntly, shortly, you're going to be dead. And shortly after that, you're going to be forgotten. How many people are buried out there that no one ever thinks of? Ever. There's a lot of them, I guarantee you. Just a couple more generations after you've gone and nobody knows who you were. Nobody remembers you. Nobody thinks on you anymore. And what do you have then? Well, we like to say, you can't take it with you, right? But that doesn't apply here. It doesn't apply here. You can't take it with you doesn't apply to this verse. Because look at what David writes next. He says, man is mortal. Man is dying. Man is going to be gone. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And I'm getting chills. And his righteousness to children's children. There's another psalm, Psalm 90, written by Moses, that says, from everlasting to everlasting, he is God. From everlasting to everlasting, he is God. And so as he is, so is his steadfast love. From everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. Life is short, he says in verse 15 and 16. And then he turns right around in verse 17 and says, but steadfast love is forever. Life is short, but steadfast love is forever. Moses cried out, please show me your glory. And God answered with the display of his goodness and the de declaration of his name. God of grace and mercy, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, long-suffering. Now remember, what we especially concentrated on last week was this truth. As breathtaking as that revelation to Moses was, it is not 
the final answer to the people of God when we pray, Lord, show us your glory. That is the heart cry of everyone who is a true child of God. We want to see you. Show us your glory. That's our great hope. As Jesus prayed in John 17, that we would be with him where he is to see his glory. So even now, all of the people of God cry out from their hearts, show us your glory. But Exodus 34, 6 and 7, as breathtaking as it is, is not the final answer. You remember, John 1, 14 to 18 was written to show us that Jesus is. Jesus is the final answer to our heart cry, show us your glory. What does John 1, 14 say? The word, speaking of Christ, became flesh and dwelt and tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I told you last Sunday that the expression full of grace and truth in John 1.14 is the New Testament fulfillment of the Old Testament revelation abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I want to take some time to show you the graciousness of steadfast love. I, I want to make a case today that that word full of grace is the fulfillment of abounding in steadfast love. I'll, make, I'll give you three things. First, just like grace, steadfast love is entirely of the Lord. God is the one who initiates it. And God is the one who sustains it. When would God have withdrawn steadfast love from his covenant people? When would be the, the natural time, the time you would think, okay, now he's going to do it? Well, first it would be when they made the golden calf. And then there's the next time they made the golden calf, two of them actually, several hundred years down the road. There are so many things that we could go to and say, okay, all right, now God's had enough of these people. He's had it with them. Steadfast love is done. But it's not the way it is. Steadfast love doesn't ebb with our sinfulness and it does not flow with our saintliness. It's entirely of the Lord to create it and to keep it, just as with grace. The second thing as with grace, steadfast love is lavish. It is of the Lord and it's lavish. Remember what God declared to Moses. He said, abundant. And what does he declare through Jesus? He says, full. And David, in particular, of all the psalmists, David pounced all over this word and he teased out from it as many poetic expressions as the Holy Spirit would allow him. I'm going to walk you through a few of these. Listen to this. And something, once I was done typing out these words, these verses, I realized, man, there is a, a I don't know how the Psalms were arranged. Like if David wrote this one first, so it's first. Actually, I don't think that's how it ha happened. They're not chronologically arranged for David's life. And remember, he wrote about half of the 150. But just listen to the escalation of this. Okay, in Psalm 32. Remember, he's pouncing on the word abundant, and he's just teasing out the implications, poetically. So, steadfast love, he writes in Psalm 32.10. Steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Why? Well, it's abundant. So, it surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Next chapter, he says, the earth, Psalm 33.5, is full of the steadfast Lord. It surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord, and the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Psalm 36, he takes it even higher. He says, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Surrounds the one who trusts. The earth is full of it, and it extends to the heavens. Psalm 57, your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Now this passage, Psalm 103, verse 11, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. And then what I read early in our service, Psalm 108, this is from verse 5, he says, your steadfast love is great above the heavens. This is what it means. See how he's meditating on the word abundant? He says it surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. 
The earth is full of it. It's great to the heavens. It's great above the heavens. You have this escalation. It is the awesome abundance of God's steadfast love, the foremost passion of his heart toward you, church family. This is the foremost passion feeling God has in his heart toward his people, his covenant, steadfast love. It's entirely of the Lord. It's lavish, and it's lasting. This is the third way that we see the graciousness of God's steadfast love. It's lasting. One of the favorite Old Testament expressions for the steadfast love of the Lord is the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Have you ever read Psalm 136? Sometimes we complain about songs that are repetitive. Okay, Psalm 136 has 26 verses. Every single verse ends the exact same way. For the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. It's their meditation on what it means that God abounds in steadfast love. They're drawing out the implications by the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to, I won't have you to turn to this verse. Okay, think with me back to when this glory revelation first occurred. It had to do with the context of the tabernacle, right? Moses was afraid that there would be no tabernacle. God said, there will be. And so Moses says, show me your glory. I want some reassurance. And God, in answering that request, says he abounds in steadfast love. The people of God never forgot the relation of the two. Tabernacle and abundance of steadfast love. And you see this about 500 years later. When the tabernacle is gone, they replace it with the more, much more beautiful and much more expansive temple. And they have this dedication service for the temple. And, and Solomon, who is the king at that time, he prays. And this is what it says in 2 Chronicles 7, 1 to 3. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground. Does this not sound like Moses? You remember? He said, I'll show you my glory. And he does. And Moses bows his face to the earth. And God declares his steadfast love. Now listen. The glory comes down, they bow down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Now turn in your Bibles to the book of Ezra, because I do want you to see this one. Ezra chapter 3. We're another nearly 500 years after that. So there's a thousand years before this, there is the, the glory revelation to Moses associated with the tabernacle. And then there is the glory revelation that has to do with the construction of the temple. And now at this point in Israel's history, the first temple has been destroyed by Babylon. The people of God were taken off into exile. Seventy years later, they return, and after some dawdling, they finally lay down the foundation of the first temple's successor. Okay? So here's the foundation being laid of the second temple. Ezra chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Ezra 3, 10 and 11. Somebody had to go to the table of contents to look up the book of Ezra. I'm not saying, that. I'm not saying it's the person who's still flipping. <laughs> I'm just saying. Ezra 3, 10 and 11. 
And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And that goes back, those directions go back a few centuries. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. It's interesting. You can't help but see these parallels. Here's the tabernacle, glory, and the announcement of steadfast love. Here's the first temple to take place of, to replace the tabernacle, and here's the glory, and here's the declaration of God's steadfast love. Here's now the second temple, five centuries after the first was built. Foundation is laid, and the people say, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. But look what happens next, in verses 12 and 13. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. We get why the older people would cry at the laying of this foundation, don't we? I mean, we get it because they saw the first temple, and the first temple was one of the ancient wonders, overlaid with gold within, and it was beautiful. That was where God's glory came down. And so they weep now because this is smaller. It's, is, it, is this fit God? So the older generation who remembers the first one, I mean, and they've been in exile 70 years about, maybe a little bit uh, less. I would have to explain that. But anyway, just a little bit less. They were young. They were just children, maybe Brian's age, when they were carried off. Now they're 80 years old, and the memory comes back. And this older generation weeps. We get why they would cry. But what they didn't get, we must get. They had seen the first house. We have seen, with eyes of faith, the final house. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory. He is the fulfillment of all that the tabernacle and the temple after it ever meant. So they wept because they remembered the first house. Others shouted with joy because they could see the second. And Psalm 103 is driving us to this. What will be the response of the people? John 1, 14 through 18 drives us to this question. What will be the response of this generation of the people of God who have seen by eyes of faith all that the tabernacle and all the temple ever meant, who have seen the fulfillment, Jesus, who tabernacled among us, who revealed the glory of God to us. Listen, the shout of praise that we offer up to God is reflective of the glory we see. See a little glory? Offer a little praise. See a great glory shining in the face of his son? Offer great praise. Their worship, their tears, and their shouts went far. The noise went far. Can you imagine what the people who were far away heard, or what they thought of the, that sound they heard? They thought, those people think that they have a great God. What will people think of us and our thoughts of our God when they hear the sound of our praise? If they would walk in here, an unbeliever in this place, what would they think of what we think about God? Would they be convinced this people believes their God is great? 
Or would they hear our response to his glory revelation and think, I don't know. Their God seems a little bit boring. Great glory, great praise. Little glory, little praise. Earlier I said, and I'm, I'm coming to a close. Earlier I said that on the day of Israel's most faithless sin, or the day after their most faithless sin in, in making and worshiping that golden calf, God showed to them the greatest revelation of his glory to date. Right? On the day of the world's greatest sin ever, God showed his greatest glory ever in the face of his son, Jesus, upon the cross. Paying the debt of our sin. Bearing the guilt of all our little praise and forgiving it. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Psalm 100. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all his praise? Psalm 106. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. Psalm 115. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray. We say, your steadfast love endures forever, O Lord. It's great above the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so high, so great is your steadfast love toward us. You abound in steadfast love to us in Jesus. You are full of grace to us in Jesus. I pray, Father, that this meditation on your word would not be forgotten. I pray that we would continually seek your face and you would give to us in your grace a sight of your glory through the eyes of faith in the face of Jesus so that our praises, even after the music stops, even after we leave this place, I pray that the praises that you are worthy of would go on in our hearts. And we would bless you, O Lord, in our souls, and in our entire being. Thank you for steadfast love. In Jesus we pray. Amen.